My name is Keith Beavers, and if you think I love Star Wars, wait till the Wheel of Time comes out. Light, it's going to be amazing. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 25 of Vine Pairs Wine 101 Podcast, just chilling out in season two. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting switcher of Vine Pair. How you doing? Guys, this stuff is complicated. Cooperage, what does it even mean? It has to do with barrels, but it's more than that. We're going to talk about barrels in general and how wine and barrels get along and how trees become barrels. Let's get into it. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine and spirits. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with LaMarca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini and Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Interested in trying some of the wine brands discussed on Wine 101? Follow the link in each episode description to purchase featured wines or browse our full portfolio at BarrelRoom.com. Cheers and all the best. I know I say this a lot because this podcast is sort of like bite-sized info for you guys to take with you and help you on your wine journey. But this subject here could not only be a series on its own, but could be its own podcast. <laughs> okay, that's, that, that's too much. This subject we're about to talk about is really in-depth, really complex, and mysterious, and old. And there's so much of it to talk about, and I can't fit it all into this episode. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to go through the, this subject called cooperage barrels and stuff. And I'm just going to, I've selected some things I think that you need to understand, or I feel like you need to understand, to kind of get a good sense of it. And then if any point in the future we can go more into it, we can I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, but throughout my wine, you know, drinking life, <laughs> career, and whatever, you know, and everything that I do, um, I, you know, I never, I didn't take barrels for granted. I just like, there's a barrel. That's what happens. You put the wine in the barrel and then, you know, it does, it does its thing. But, and then you learn a little, you learn about what barrels do with wine and interacting and all that kind of stuff. And it's really cool. And we're going to get into that. But it's not until I went to an actual cooperage in France that I saw how crazy and intense and complicated and in-depth this industry is and mysterious. I went to a, a cooperage in somewhere in France. I can't remember where it was. But I was not allowed to take pictures because the way that this company makes their barrels is a secret within that family. And this is a common thing in cooperages or barrel making, or I should say in the more artisan barrel making world of France. Today, the art of barrel making or cooperage has definitely advanced and there's some technology involved, but cooperage, which well, the, the word cooperage means it's just a, a big sort of all encompassing noun for all wooden containers and a cooperage is a place also it's a word also used for the business of making those containers and a cooper is someone who actually does the work to make cooperage happen. <laughs> was that a little bit confusing? I don't think I think we got it. 
And even though we do have some modern technology to help us make barrels, the, the idea of the barrel to store things in has been around for a very long time. What's very hard about wood and wooden barrels and, you know, is that they deteriorate over time more so than amphora, right? So it's very hard to track the history of barrels and the movement of barrels through trade because they're gone. But through documented evidence or history, not physical history, like archaeological history, there have been, barrels have been being made since all the way back to the Iron Age. There's evidence that the Celts were using barrels for large-scale transportation. There's mention that Julius Caesar, in his campaigns in France, encountered barrels during the 50s BC. Towards the end of the first century, Pliny was describing the barrel to his Roman audience, knowing they had no idea what that meant. He apparently had discovered them in Gaul. And it's in the third century we start seeing barrels showing up in literature and art. And what's fascinating, when I was reading about this, it shows that after this point in history, you can actually track the decrease of use of amphora. So it kind of, sh- you know, even though we don't see the barrels <laughs> because they're gone, it's kind of cool how you can track it through the decrease of the use of something else. That's wild stuff. I don't want to spend too much time on the history of the barrel because we all know what a barrel looks like. And for, uh, for our purposes, we, I want you guys to really understand how wine and oak interact with each other. I think that's, a, that's really fascinating stuff and it'll, you can apply that knowledge when you're actually drinking wine. There's really no evidence of how wine and barrels became a thing. But what people talk a lot about in the industry are the stories of trade. And that at some point, someone made a wine and put it into a barrel. It got on a ship and it made it somewhere else. And when it was in its original location, it tasted one way. And when it got to its other location, it tasted differently, better. And this was a gradual you know, realization. And then at some point, wine becomes part, wine and barrel becomes part of our industry. Obviously, this all started because barrels throughout history were used to store all kinds of goods. And they are designed specifically for transportation. The way a barrel looks, where it has a bulge in the middle, allows it to be put on its side, spun and rolled onto a ship and off to a ship, off of a ship. And before the invention or innovation or advancement of steel and plastic, you can imagine how important these barrels were. Of course, as those things became more prominent, the wooden barrel became less so. And today, the wooden barrel is mainly for wine, spirits, and beer. But it's so important for that, for the drinking culture and the drinking industry, that this old artisan style, this this trade of cooperage is still around. You see it mostly in France. You don't see as much in in, 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 the New World like the United States, which is a big oak producer as well. And this process involves cutting down trees that are at least 100 years old, uh, cutting them against the grain into staves, and then leaving these staves out in nature for up to 36 months, only to be taken in, heated, shaped, toasted, and turned into a barrel. It's a lot harder than that. Every species of tree is different. Every tree within those species are individual and unique. And there are different combinations of woods that are used. Mostly it's oak, French oak, and American oak. But there's also been chestnut, 
cherry wood. There are barrels that are a combination of woods, a combination of forests, a combination of trees, a combination of staves. It's all very different. There are also different ways to cut the staves, whether using French oak or American oak, the kind of angles you have to cut to make sure that when you put the staves together that they are airtight. And depending on all of that that I just said, you have to toast the barrel. And there are three general kinds of toasting for the barrel, basically firing the inside of the barrel to solidify the protective layer between the wood and whatever you're putting in the barrel. And then you got to think about what kind of wood you're using and how much you want the barrel to be toasted based on the reactions from fire in the wood. It's an absolute complex, almost thinking ahead of the game industry. There are some winemakers that actually go out to the forest and select trees, knowing they're not going to get that tree made into the barrels for well over maybe three or four years. And the things that winemakers have to think about when selecting a barrel, they come in different sizes. What size do do you want? And each size has a different result for the wine. How old do you want the barrel to be? You can get a brand new barrel. You can get barrels that are been used a few times and those affect the wine. What kind of what kind of wood do you want the barrel to be? Because that'll also affect the resulting wine. What kind of, how was that barrel made? Is it a cooperage that you like? Do you need to get a barrel that's based off your specific winemaking techniques, your specific region? Is there other laws in place for wine to be a certain way? So these barrels are the ones that you use because you want to be within these laws. And how much time is this wine going to be in barrel? And if so, how is that barrel going to, how do you predict the wine will be after the barrel's been in for that long? I mean, you have data, they, everyone has data, I'm sure, but every barrel's different. And then the last but not least, the big one was how much toast do you want in your barrel? How much time do you want fire licking the inside of the walls of that barrel? Because different levels of toasting will affect the wine. That's a lot of decisions to make. But fundamentally, how cool is this? That the wine world has all these happy accidents and the, the, the barrel is one of them. And it just so happens that this thing naturally made to store food and stuff just so happens that the way it's created and from what it's created from benefits wine tremendously. Wow, pretty amazing. And when we put wine into a barrel and let it sit there and interact with what's inside, we call that barrel maturation. And of course, Jedi wine master Jancis Robinson puts it so nicely. Barrel maturation is the winemaking operation of storing a fermented wine in wooden barrels to create ideal conditions for the components of the wine to evolve and that the wood imparts some oak flavor. So really there are two parts here, evolution and extraction. The way a barrel is made with small amounts of air being able to get into the barrel is what helps the evolution and the maturation of the wine. And the char and the actual constituents in the wood inside the barrel interacting with the wine is what adds the flavor. For me, this is the fun stuff. This is a wine truly becoming a wine if it's meant to be made in this way, of course. If a winemaker is using wooden barrels to rack wine that means that wine is seeing some oxygen. And the benefit of having a barrel to rack from is that it clarifies the wine, meaning that all the sediment 
initial from the fermentation falls to the bottom of the barrel, but it falls in one spot. It all convenes down in that little bottom part. It's easier for the wine to be racked off of a wooden barrel because it all the sediment falls into one place. And the barrels are being filled and emptied through racking through a hole in the side of the barrel that is stoppered by a plastic wad called a bung. After the racking is done and the wine is ready to mature in the barrel and the bung has been put into the hole, the wine, the barrel is then rolled into a rack. Through this entire process, there has been small doses of oxygen soaking into the wine. These are very small, yet very significant and very important saturations that will help the wine mature. As the wine interacts with the oxygen, whether slow or fast, however the winemaker wants it to happen, those primary aromas we talked about all the way in the first season, those grapey, fresh, young wine aromas, begin to reduce. Oxygen also causes small tannin molecules to gather or attract each other, what's called agglomerating. These little tannin molecules agglomerate, and they reduce a little bit of the color of a white wine, turning it more towards gold. And in red wine, it starts softening the astringency of the wine, softening the tannins. Also, these tannins, some of them start to absorb the anthocyanin in the wine. Again, that's the color pigments that are natural in the grape we talked about in the first season. These tannins soaked in pigment are called pigmented tannins, obviously. And once they're pigmented, these tannins are much more permanent in the wine than the natural anthocyanins. This goes into how the wine ages and loses color over time. Well, the pigmented tannins will hold on longer than the anthocyanins. So when you see a red wine starting to age and lose color, it's the, antho, the natural anthocyanins that are leaving and not the pigmented tannins. I know it's crazy, but it's so cool. Sorry, I love this stuff. Now, as the wine interacts with the actual wood... Alcohol is working to soak its way slowly but surely and steadily into the wood. There is a protective layer between the wine and the wood called the toasting, and we'll get to that in a second, but there are things in the wood that extract into the wine that help give the wine certain characteristics, and the alcohol assists in that extraction. One of those extractions is a compound called lactones, L-A-C-T-O-N-E-S. It's derived from these macro biomolecules called lipids that are soluble. And the levels of these lactones depend on the kind of tree, the tree itself, and parts of the tree. But at very high levels of lactones in the wine, this is what, when you smell coconut on a wine, that's what this is. American oak has naturally high levels of lactones, more so than French oak. But no matter the oak, toasting a barrel and toasting wood can actually increase the levels of lactones available. One thing here, I'm talking about French oak and American oak primarily. There are other woods that are used to age wine, but these are so more popular that I'm going to stick with these two. And there's, of course, that vanilla thing that happens a lot with wines that see oak. Well, the thing is, it's vanilla. Okay, so it's not the vanilla bean, it's actually a phenolic aldehyde called vanillin, and it's found in the vanilla bean, but it's also in oak. It's a product of what's called uh, a lignin. The lignin in plants is a, okay, get, bear with me here, a complex organic polymer. I know that sounds crazy. All it means is a repeated organic pattern. It's what makes plants woody or rigid. As the lignin breaks down in the wood, 
the alcohol extracts the vanillin into the wine. And again, toasting will increase this, but also the seasoning of staves out in air that also concentrates the vanillin. And as the lignin further breaks down, this is where the real cool stuff starts to happen. The smoky stuff, the spicy stuff. These are called volatile phenols, and they extract into the wine, again, as the alcohol penetrates the wood. The thing is, these phenols, these compounds are harder to coax out. Actually, seasoning staves in air decreases these phenols. So when a wine has these characteristics, you know that it's been taking some time in the barrel to develop. Compounds like eugenol, which kind of gives this sort of clove-like aroma. Guayacol and 4-methylguayacol gives you that smoky charred aromas. I know you'll, you'll recognize guayacol from the Britannomyces episode, but this is methylguayacol, not ethylguayacol. There's also something called 4-vinylguayacol, which gives you this nice carnation note. So the floral notes you get in red wine, that's it. I, I'm giving you all these names and all this stuff because this is, when you smell a wine, this is the complexity you're smelling. And to top it all off, as carbohydrates degrade into the wine, they form products as well to add to the aroma of wine. Things like furfurols. This is the compound that gives you that coffee note or like cooked bread note. Maltol and cyclotene. These are the two things that give you that sort of malty caramel note in wine. And last but not least, tannin. As the lignin breaks down even more, it extracts tannin into the wine, adding tannin to the wine and adding structure to the wine. You see how this is, this is crazy nature stuff doing wonderful things. And over time, humans have kind of tried to con, not, not control this, but just kind of manage it so that you get something beautiful out of it. Can you imagine if something like Britannomyces got in there and infected the barrel and started eating all of this natural sugar, degrading the complexity of what this wine wants to do? <sighs> Nuts. Now, all this and more happens in a barrel, and a lot of this interaction is defined by how much that barrel is toasted. Is it a light toast? Is it a medium toast? Or is it a heavy toast? And like I said before, the toast is this protective barrier between the wine and the wood. It's not that we don't want the wine to interact with the wood. It's just this, it's almost like a delayed reaction depending on how, what kind of wine you want to make. So the less toasting of the wine, you get more of the tannin and other characteristics leached into the wine. So in a lightly toasted barrel, the wine is going to be oaky and woody. It's still going to have some fruit to it, but it's still going to be tannic. And this is a barrel that's been toasted at about up to 356 degrees Fahrenheit for about five minutes. That's a light toast. And the wood is still going to be a little bit light. If you increase it to almost 400 degrees Fahrenheit and toast it for an extra five minutes, it means a 10-minute toast, these wines often, this is where the vanillin comes out, the coffee notes. This is where wines are a little bit less tannic because there's less interaction with, or it takes longer for the wine to interact with the tannin in the wood. And these wines can be, they can be rounder, they can be smoother, but they still have tannin and they're still what's called persistent. And of course, the wood is getting browner. Now, if you go for 15 minutes at well over almost 450 degrees Fahrenheit, that's called a heavy toast. The wood is dark. This is roasted beans. This is where you get that toasted bread. Some people get nutmeg on this stuff. Cloves. Actually, sometimes you get, it's like smoked meat. Sometimes I call it like spiced meat, but it's really kind of smoked meat. 
So those are just some things that happen in a barrel when wine is interacting with the wood. All these aromas we talked about in the first season, all those things you're trying to get in your head, these things are just some of the more, I guess, uh, you know, apparent stuff. All the other wacky stuff that comes into your brain from stuff you've experienced in your life that that comes out of a wine, that's, that's just your perception of it all. And that's what's the beauty of wine is you get to perceive in a wine whatever you want. But here we have actual, you know, natural compounds being leached into a wine. One of them is called vanilla, and it's actually in another plant called a vanilla bean, and you actually can smell it. So this is just amazing stuff. And this is how complex wine is. Once you make the wine, you put it in barrel, and you got to wait for nature to do its thing. This is the natural way of wine evolving. This is why some places in Europe have laws in place for how long a wine needs to be in barrel before it's put into bottle. And even then, so when a wine is in bottle, how long it needs to stay in bottle before it's released. And a lot of this is because of the interactions with wine and wood and how long or short that that region or that winemaker needs for that wine to achieve the complexity level at which they believe or the sort of region believes (laughs) through consortiums and laws and stuff is ready to be released. And you can see why of all this work from the vineyard all the way through the winemaking process into the barrel, waiting all this time, this is why winemakers add SO2 to wines. This is why winemakers try to keep spoilage yeasts away from wines because these kind of natural complexities are so subtle and so beautiful. These, those things can compromise not only your experience, but what the winemaker wants to show you. I mean, a little bit of brett here and there is not bad for a wine, can add a little bit of smokiness to it, but there are other constituents in barrels that can add smokiness to wine. It's just an interesting, nature's crazy, guys. So there you have it. I hope this helps you understand cooperage, barrels, and what goes on in this world, and then how it applies to wine. So next time you're drinking a wine that has some oak on it, you got an idea of how it all got there. See you next week. Find Parakeet is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine experience. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with Lamarca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini in Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Cheers and all the best.